Good evening. We are continuing in the book of Romans. Uh, and so we're going to pick up in chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. But before we do, we, we again need to set the foundation and the platform because this is going to be an important part of our entire study. One of the problems that I think is made in the book of Romans, that I've made in the book of Romans, is I'll take a a passage, I'll take maybe even a chapter, and I'll try and do inductive Bible study through that chapter, and you really can't do that without taking into account the full book. Because if you just look at a chapter, what Paul does is he'll give you a little hint of something, but he'll then leave it to to simmer. He'll give you a little tease of something, but then he won't talk about it again for a few chapters. And then he'll drop it again, build it up, and then talk again in a few chapters. And so if you just talk about that one chapter, you'll miss what's taking place. We started watching this TV series that's on Netflix called The Killings. I don't know if you guys watched it. I don't know what I'm talking about. I know I'm talking about it, but in this series, and we just finished season one, at least Lauren and I did last night at about two in the morning. I think Kareem fell asleep somewhere in the middle of it, so you don't know the last of what happened. But it's one of those series where you think, ah, the teacher did it. And then, boom, it's not the teacher. It's the senator. Right. And no, it's the worker who, you know, it's like it it keeps jumping. And if you just take one episode, you'll come to a conclusion that's not right. And they do it on purpose. They set you up just to blow your mind and then let you go somewhere else. But the same thing can happen if we just say, oh, here's this chapter. I'm going to just talk about this chapter and see it just in its context of itself without the volume of the book. You miss the intent, I think, in a lot of that. So in review, talking about this, and I I just put this timeline because remember that Paul is bringing Jewish theology to the Roman Greco mindset. And in the Jewish theology, there is God who is the creator, the dynamic creator, God who is involved with the creation. And this God, as he's involved with creation, he makes a covenant with Abraham. This covenant is an agreement that God says, I am going to use you and through you bless all the nations of the world. Through you, all these people will be blessed. And so this covenant is God's agreement. It's so much central a part of this book. Because if God made agreement, did he fulfill that agreement? So many people think, well, you know, God called the nation of Israel, but they didn't fulfill it, so now he's put them aside and he has the church. So is that how God works? He he makes an agreement, but he can't fulfill it, and so they just fall to the wayside? Is that what happened? And what we're seeing in Romans is that's not the case. And so with this covenant, God then made a, a law, the Torah. And so the law of God given to the people. And so God is going to use this people. He gives them instruction how to live again so that they can be a light to the world. Does that wording sound familiar? 
what did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. Well, the nation of Israel was supposed to be, but we see that they failed after the law was given. Even after the commandments were given, they fell into idolatry. They made the golden calf. And continually throughout the nation of Israel, they fell into sin. Even David, and he was the, you know, probably the premier monarch in the society, their king, but he fell. And so what happens with sin? God has to deal with it because he is dynamic, he is the creator. And so God has to deal with the breaking of the law that he gave. And so then we have the exile. And exile and sin go together in, again, this Hebrew mind. If we are in exile, it is because we have not yet been restored. It's evidence that we are in a, a broken condition and relationship with God. And so living in exile, which they were at the time of Christ, was evident that they were in this broken relationship, that they had yet been restored, that they were still being dealt with, or their sin was still being dealt with. And then what they did is they looked for the end when God would renew all things, when in their mind God would raise up Israel and Israel would be the light to the nations. Israel would take its place and God would say, yes, I fulfilled what I have done. The covenant that I made with Abraham is now fulfilled. Israel is now taking their place. And this is the end times or a new beginning, you want to call it, eschatology. I'm actually thinking about doing the book of Revelation, just like, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if I'm ready for it, but I'm not, not sure if you're ready for it. Uh, I'm just joking. If I'm ready for it, you're ready for it. Uh, so the end times, they thought that'll be the restoration, but they weren't in the end times. They couldn't be because they're still in exile. But then Jesus comes and we talked about the cross, how again, the cross was the fulfillment of God's covenant and how in Jesus, he has fulfilled all these things. And so Jesus would say, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so Jesus is not only the incarnation of God, he is the incarnation of Israel. He is the completion. And so this is the foundation that we are looking at and that we're talking about. And last week, as we begin to talk about this, law court language that they would have throughout judges. God established that this is how you are to deal with one another. We saw that the law court was a metaphor to help explain the covenant. And so this is what Paul is wanting to explain, and he used the idea of the law to do it. And the law, again, has the plaintiff, has the defendant, the law court, and what would happen is if the judge would find in your favor, whether you're the plaintiff or the defendant, if he'd find in your favor, then that person was justified, was made right, which is where we get the idea of justification or righteousness, as we saw in chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17 specifically. And that also is translated in the covenantal language. In the covenant language, it also means that when you are justified, that you are God's covenant people. In other words, God sees you, the newness of all things, back into the place where he had made the agreement. And so justification isn't just, well, my sins aren't held against me. Justification is God sees you as his covenant people. 
And justification is the the covenant declaration that these people belong to the family of God. The people who are now in Christ belong to this covenant family. And so justification also includes eschatology. Because you are my covenant people. The people who are having a new beginning are my people. The people that I said I had made this agreement with. And so the resurrection from the dead, the restoration of Israel, the return from exile, forgiveness of sin, that whole package is included with the idea of justification. And so in verse 16, just backing up a little, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? We talked about it last week. What? Yes, Jesus. But more specifically, Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord. This is the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Remember, he's taking this idea the Hebrew idea, putting it into the Gentile understanding, Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. The gospel is that Jesus is the Lord. He is the one for whom you have to answer. And so the whole idea of that gospel, it's God's covenant faithfulness is now revealed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the fact that Jesus is the Lord because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. We talked about to the Jew and to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the fact that Jesus is Lord, the righteousness of God, meaning God kept his word, is revealed, apocalyptu, the word revelation. Jesus is the revelation of God, which has a lot to do with what the book of Revelation is about. It's the disclosure, the revealing that Jesus is Lord. Remember, it's not revelations, plural. It's singular. It's a revelation. And so the whole idea of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord, and it's the revelation of God revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Remember, you need to have faith in something. So what is it that we're having faith in? Jesus is Lord. God kept his promise. That's the covenant. So the righteousness is found in what God has done. We are now justified, meaning we have been not only forgiven for our sins, but we are now the covenant people of God. That is putting us in the right place. That is the idea of justification. So it's more than just having your sins forgiven. It's more than just salvation through faith. So he continues, or we are going to continue, or try to continue, and we're going to try and get through uh, all the rest of chapter 1 and a little bit into chapter 2, and we'll see how we go. Let's read... Verses 18 through 32, and then we'll talk about it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that took that look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree and those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue in to do those thing, very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, this portion, and actually this whole segment goes into chapter 3, about verse 20, I believe. It's all kind of one thought, but it's too much to just cover in in one sitting. And so we're going to have to break it up into a couple. But many times what we have heard or what has happened in commentaries, in fact, it might even say that at a heading on chapter 1 verse 18, mine says, God's wrath against sinful humanity. Does your topic say anything like that in your Bible? Something about sinful, the sinful world or God dealing with sinful humanity. It's not just dealing with sinful humanity because there are these little asides that come in throughout it that Paul is purposely dealing with. And in these next chapter and a half, two chapters, there are going to be some questions that are asked that Paul doesn't answer here. He doesn't answer them until later on. He'll bring them up again in chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 12. And again, he's hinting at something and he's building up at something. But tied to this revelation, this understanding, revealing God's faithfulness, this is tied to that. In other words, Paul is trying to bring about an understanding of this, but he's doing it going back actually to the book of Genesis. Paul is actually telling us the story of the world. Not just that there are a lot of sinners out there, but since creation, he says, verse 20, since the creation of the world. And so he's taking us all the way back to Genesis to give us an understanding of what exactly has happened and how these things are showing up. It's the Genesis account in so many ways. He he takes us back and he goes through a series of things. And when he says something like, they... 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what he has made, so that the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, who is they? Who is the they that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the people at the beginning, okay? In the creation after the fall, they, they knew about God, but what did they do with what they knew? And he's covering a, a large portion of history because later he's going to start quoting the prophets here. But he's trying to give us a story account of the things that are happening. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify him. Okay, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about idolatry here. They exchanged the glory. What glory is he talking about? How did they exchange what glory? They exchanged the glory that they were created in. What was the image that we were created in? In God's image. And so they exchanged that image for something else. You see, when we worship something else other than God, we are exchanging that glory. God has created us in his image. We are to worship him alone. When we start worshiping something like a golden calf, or we start, start giving credence to other words other than God's words, we are then placing them in a position of God. If we, for example, were to listen to a serpent above the voice of God, a reptile, what are we doing? We are exchanging the glory that God has given us. We are worshiping instead something less than. And so God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And he goes on and he lists a number of things. This passage isn't you know, just dealing with a few specific things. It's the result of what happens when we exchange that glory. Because the doctrine of the image of God is, again, not static. It's not that God needed us so that he could see himself, a vain image of himself. That's not why we were created in the image of God, so that God could look at us and go, oh, there I am, look at me. We are created in the image of God so that the world could see God through us. That like a mirror would show who God is, we would be reflecting that to everyone and everything around us. That was the intent of the creator, the dynamic creator who is involved. We were created in his image to show who he was by how we lived. Yes. Yeah, it's exactly. We, are, we don't get all the characteristics of God. We're not omnipresent, omnipotent, anything like that. But we are to have the character of God. We are to love. No, it's not about a physical appearance. Yeah, it's not about a physical appearance. It's about the character of God, the things that make up who God is. God is love. We are to be loving. God is patient. And he'll go on and mention some of those things 
or the, how we detoured from that image uh, a little bit later. And so the image that he created us in is supposed to be na- dynamic. As a result, the human race departed from the image of God is that they leave that image and reflect something else. And that's what he goes on. God gives them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And he goes on and he lists some things. And he says, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Instead of listening to the voice of God, they listen to the serpent. They listen to creation. They're involved with that creation. And he really is painting that picture, the whole Genesis account, going through to their worship of the golden calf and all these things. God gave them instruction, but they didn't hear it. They turned away from the image and worshiped the created thing, the creature, instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Gave them over. In other words, he let them do it. They began to do it, so God let them do it. He gave them over. He didn't forcefully constrain them to do what he wanted. He gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in them the due penalty of their error. Now, Paul is not saying in this situation, these passages, that homosexuality in particular is a worse sin than other sins. What he is saying here is that when a society loses its way and starts to worship that which is less than God, then its image bearing starts to fall apart. Think about what it said in Genesis. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so the image of God was seen in male and female. But if they leave that image, then you will start to see that burning for one another because now the reflection is no longer on the image of God. It starts to be on the creation. And so you start to see that take place. But it's important to see it in this light because he's not picking on or focusing just on homosexuality. That isn't the intent of this. The intent of this is to show that when we leave the image of God, we stop reflecting the image, and in male and female, he created them. That is the image of God that he has given. Paul picks that up also in Ephesians when he talks about, I show you a mystery, I think it's Ephesians, where he he talks about that idea of man and woman being an example. And so... It's not to blast those who are in the homosexual community. That's not what this passage is for. And he goes on and he proves that, but what it is for is to show us how we left the image of God at the creation. When God created them in his image, male and female, he created them. And so when we leave or abandon the image of God, then that image bearing starts to fall apart. This is seen as the present anticipation of future judgment. It's the shadow of the future judgment is seen in our current 
situation. This is just one example, and he's going to go on and give others. When you start to see the shadow, you know, because we have abandoned this, we are going to have to be dealt with, just like the nation of Israel, that, that sin that breaks the relationship with God. Well, when we start seeing these things take place like we're seeing today, what it is is the shadow of that disobedience, the, the shadow of that un, upcoming judgment that's going to take place in our world because of our condition. It's telling us we're not who we should be. And he goes on and he gives some other things. As he talks about this, he discloses some other things, just as they did not. Again, who are they? Just as they did not. He's not talking about homosexuals here. He's talking about a whole range of people. These people who abandoned that worship of God, the image of God, and now started committing idolatry, worshiping other things, whether it's themselves or idols or different gods. And they didn't retain God, so God gave them over to the depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. These are all other wickedness. So it's not just homosexuality. Okay? There's evil greed. There's depravity. There's envy. Anyone here envious? Thank you for being honest. I am many times. Again, automobiles can make me envious, the right ones. Homes, going to home. How many people are envious of homes? You can see, oh man... I wish I had that. Be envious of another person's body status, financial status. I mean, envy, what is that? That's leaving the image of God. That's a form of idolatry. Murder, strife, deceit, malice, being malicious and intent. These are all things And again, some of these things might start hitting home. Well, he's telling this human story. He's telling what's happened since the fall in humanity and how it's being revealed. So he is talking about sin, but more than just how bad we are, he's talking about the human story, and he's going through it. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no Mercy? See, if you don't have mercy, that is not bearing the image of God. These are all the things that no longer reflect who God is, but they reflect the image of the creation, the fallen creation. Even as we're going through Genesis and we're seeing the dysfunction in all these families, right? What is it? It's bearing the wrong image. It's not bearing the image of God. They are gossips, slanders. Now, I know people who will hammer down heavy on homosexuality, but they gossip and they slander. And so it's not picking on a certain sin. Again, it's talking about humanity throughout the course of the years. And we need to recognize that because 
Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue doing these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And the idea of approving those who practice them is they call evil good and good evil. They, they have no discernment of what's right. The, the image of God has been so far removed that they no longer see these things as even being problematic. In fact, they encourage people in them, in all these things. And so Paul is talking about, again, what has happened when we left the image of God what we were supposed to do, reflect God, and then started reflecting the creation instead. And just like the nation of Israel was in exile, the human condition has been in exile and separation because of this, in this condition. And this is that present position, and all the things that we see, all these things that he listed, are the shadow that judgment is coming. It's just like Exile was proof that they were in sin. All these things, the, the evil, the, the gossip, the slander, the murder, the, the jealousy, yeah, the homosexuality, all these things are evidence that things are out of alignment here. But he's not picking on one specific people, as I've heard talked about in this whole passage. And, and so he continues in chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment. Do the same things. Now, just stop and think, who's he talking to? What's the point he's trying to make? Keep in mind what's going on here, the picture. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Important thing, judgment. We're dealing now with the law court. God, how is he going to do that? Well, God's going to do it truthfully. God's judgment is going to be true judgment. So that when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? The answer is, of course, no. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Apocalypsis, there it is again, and Revelation is pointing to something. God will repay each person according to what they have done. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And again, it's for the Jew and in the same way for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Again, the judge is going to judge by truth, and he doesn't show favoritism. He's pointing to a condition here of the law. He's trying to get us to understand judgment in this law court sense. God does not show favoritism. 
All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who have righteousness in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So now Paul comes and he says, the judge, you want to know who the judge is? Here's the judge. Jesus is Lord. My gospel, as it declares, Jesus is going to be the judge. And he says he's going to judge truthfully and without favoritism. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a gentle Gentile, a gentle Gentile. God is going to still judge truthfully and without favoritism without impartiality. And so he's coming to a place where he's telling them how things are going to be done. There will come a day when God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. By putting in the name Jesus, Paul is saying that this judge will be impartial because Jesus is the crucified Jewish Messiah. He's not going to be against the Jews. He is the Jewish Messiah. He's not going to be against the Gentiles. He was crucified by the Jews to extend his hands to the Gentiles. And so one of the main points of verses 1 through 16 is that impartiality of how judgment will be measured out. God will judge evil. That is what a judge is supposed to do. Remember, when you do what's wrong, you get judged. There's the exile. Well, that's what needs to happen to anyone who does evil. There has to be that judgment. That's what he's supposed to do. God will do so impartially according to the law. What is interesting is in verse 6, he tells them, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And in verse 13, he says, that for it is not those who hear the law of righteousness in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, here is Paul's book on justification by faith. And the first time we talk about justification, it has to do with works. Isn't that interesting? What do we do with that? We don't find out yet. He's purposely leaving us hanging there because he's going to deal with it again throughout this epistle. He's trying to build something up in us so that we would ask those questions. Hypothetical, people think Paul is just saying this because no one actually can do it. It's just, you know, you'd have to be perfect, but no one can be perfect. But I don't think that's why Paul is telling us this. I think Paul is trying to disclose something and he kind of lets us see a little bit about it because he talks about God judging the secrets of a person. 
God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. Secrets, the thoughts of their heart, the law that is written on their heart. Because in the next passage, he's going to go on and talk about those who are true Israel. And when he says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, he's talking, they were not given the Torah. They didn't have the law law of God. So these people didn't have the written law. They didn't have the Torah. And so he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And remember at the beginning, Paul is dealing with that tension in this book. And as he talks about that tension, he, he goes on and he just wants to let you know that God is going to be just, that God is rich in kindness in verse 4, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness has intended us to, to lead us to repentance. And so he's again tipping his hat here, showing us something that, you know, you want God to deal with you according to law. You Jews say we are God's people because we have the law. And then he says, well, but if you have the law, why are you in exile? Because you didn't keep the law. What about those who don't have the Torah, didn't have the law? How are they going to be judged? Well, it's going to be truthful without favoritism. God is going to deal with them according to what they do. And again, he tells them a little bit about what they do because his statement in verse 7 says, those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. Those who seek these things, seek glory. What glory? The glory that we had, the glory that comes from God, the glory that God gives, the glory that belongs to us who are created in his image. Those who want to be in that position again with God, God is going to give them what is necessary. And he's going to do that whether you're a Jew who came from Abraham or whether you're a Gentile who is a part, God is going to deal truthfully. He's going to deal impartially. He's not going to show favoritism. And so he's telling us these things so that we can start to understand that God is being very, very inclusive. He's wanting them to understand that the human condition is one of brokenness that we see the shadow in our current condition of exile and brokenness, that the judgment of God is here to fall upon us. So who is going to deal with it? Well, the judge. Who is the judge? It's Jesus. Where did Jesus deal with the sin? I'm getting ahead of myself. But you start to see where it's going. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to judge? Because he's got to do it fair. He's got to do it with impartiality. He has to deal with it. How is he going to deal with it? According to his gospel, that's how God is going to do it. Jesus is going to be the judge and he's going to deal with it. And so when he says the Gentiles who by nature start doing the things that are in the law, 
he's letting us know that the law is not just something that was given to a certain people, that there is a law that takes place in the heart. And so next week when we start talking about that law that is in the heart, the circumcision of the heart, he starts quoting now in the prophets because he's moving his way through their story, helping them to see that God has always been on plan. That this idea of Jesus coming and fulfilling the law and the covenant promise was always a part of God's plan. That it's not a new thing. God says, well, you know, I tried to give the law, but you guys just couldn't keep it. And I guess no one could really keep it. So why'd you give it, God? What was the purpose? Well, the purpose was intentional. It wasn't to show you you can't keep it. It was to show us the one who could. Because according to the gospel, Jesus is Lord. Kind of getting a glimpse of the shadow where things are going. okay? Because Paul is being intentional in all these things. The questions he's bringing up, they're not to be answered just right now. And again, we have to be careful. We don't try and just find the answer just here in this passage because he's leaving us questions. He's giving us that suspense. You know, the end of the TV program when you see, you know, the evidence that looks like this person did it and you're like, oh, it's them? And then it ends. The credits come up and you're like, no, quick, watch another episode. You know, but wait, it's two. I can't help it. I got to They do it on purpose, right? So that you'll sit there and go through the next episode because it's not over. He's just getting started. He's starting to tell this story and he's trying to provoke something in both the Jews who believe that they had the Torah, they were the covenant people, and the Gentiles who thought, well, no, God didn't care about them. He's going to do something new with us. Well, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. He is the Jewish Messiah. And you see, that's how he can deal with it truthfully and without favoritism. Because of who he is, even though they're in this condition, God's still going to deal with them justly, just like he will deal with everyone. Are there any questions in this part? Didn't cover a lot of ground because I didn't think I could. But So, next week, read chapter 2, 17 to chapter 3, verse 20. That's your homework assignment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be... A great analogy to it, or similar story, where God did the same thing with Pharaoh. He gave them, him up to his own heart. Yeah, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, he hardened the condition that was already there. Yeah, God gave them up to what they were doing. He let them do what they were going to do. And with that, let the consequences fall. Break the law, you're in exile. You will deal with those things. You will have a broken condition of the image of God. And so you are in danger of judgment. And so. <laughs> yep, it's going on today. <laughs> now, when we say gospel, we mean good news, right? That's what the word means. So if the gospel is Jesus is Lord, 
we need to think, how is this good news? In light of all the things that we're talking about, how is this gospel? This gospel is connected to this, of course, and it's connected to this, the whole idea of the law and dealing with truth and favoritism. How is that good news? That's what we're needing to find out. Okay? All right, let's pray. (laughs) Father, I do pray that all these things, Lord, even though it's a lot of informational things, I pray that it will help us to have a, a deeper insight of how extensive you have thought about your creation, how far you have reached to save all those who are lost, how it is your goodness that leads us to repentance, how it is that kindness and forbearance that you have shown us that is helping us to see that you are a God who is truthful and merciful. And Lord, there are so many things that we don't know. There are no, There is no way that we can judge the thoughts and intents of a heart. Even as Paul writes, you who judge, you're doing the same thing. And so when we condemn homosexuality, we have to look and see, do we have envy? Do we have gossip? Do we have slandering? Lord, we have to see ourselves in light of how you have revealed the truth. We have to see ourselves in light of what our image is supposed to be in looking like you. And all these areas where we fail to be a reflection of your image, Lord, what do we do with that? Where do we go with that? And Lord, there will be a judge. The good news is the judge is Jesus. Lord, may we find out what that means to our own hearts and our own souls, our own lives, as we embrace the truth that Jesus is Lord.